Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. Well, as we move into December, we are breaking off from our study through Genesis to do an Advent series that will take us through this Christmas season. And I feel like every year I, I say that I'm not necessarily committed to doing an Advent series every single year, but then we always seem to do one anyway. And so, so here we are. Uh, it takes a certain amount of effort to come up with a theme and to pick uh, passages that go with that theme. And creativity, as, as you know, is not one of my strengths. But Advent series are also fun, and, and they're particularly helpful at this time of year to help us keep our focus on Christ in the midst of all of the, the, the competition that, that seeks our attention during this season. And so for this year, at least, we're going to do another Advent series. Now, in the past, we've taken time to put Christmas in perspective in light of the big picture of what God is doing in the world across the span of human history. Uh, we've looked at some of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, who he would be and, and what we would do, or he, what he would do. Uh, and we've looked at why Jesus is not only the reason for the season, but the best reason for the season. And this year, I want us to look together at some of what God offers us through Christmas. Our, our series for this year is going to be what God offers us through Christmas. So grab a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, uh, you'll find that on page 807. As we get started this morning, we're going to see that through Christmas, God offers him, first of all, himself. And so we're in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, which is all about how God's promises of salvation have come to fulfillment. And so it's appropriate for chapter 1 of the New Testament to be about the arrival of the long-promised Messiah. And in, in verses 1 through 17 of, of Matthew chapter 1, uh, Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And I found it interesting that, that the genealogy begins where we just left off in Genesis with Abraham. But as the story proper begins here in, in verse 18, Matthew writes that the birth of Jesus Christ uh, happened, took place in this way. And we have to remember that when Matthew refers to Jesus, Christ is not a name, it's not his last name, that's a title. Right? Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah. And so this opening verse is telling us how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Uh, the time has come. The one that God's people have been waiting for for thousands of years is finally here. But as we see, the Messiah comes into the world in a most unexpected way. So in the second half of verse 18, Matthew sets the stage by telling us that when Jesus' mother was betrothed to a man named Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now, 
Many of you will remember the story from when we went through the Gospel of Luke a couple of years ago. Uh, On a day just like any other day, Mary is minding her own business when suddenly the angel Gabriel appears to her and informs her that she is going to have a baby. And that baby is the long-promised Messiah and that she is to name him Jesus. But based on Mary's circumstances, she doesn't have any reason to think that she would be having a baby, and so she asks Gabriel how this is going to happen. And Gabriel replies that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her, and that the the power of of the Most High will overshadow her. So in a similar way that we saw the Spirit of God hovering at creation back in Genesis chapter 1, this is going to be a miraculous conception that circumvents the normal process of becoming pregnant. And because of this, Gabriel explains that this child will be called holy and will be known as the Son of God. And as crazy as all this may sound, he reminds Mary that nothing will be impossible with God. And and so, in in a demonstration of great faith, Mary responds, let it be done to me according to your word. She has no idea how all this is going to work. She has no ability to appreciate what it's going to require of her over the course of the rest of her life, but she is willing to do whatever God asks her to do. Well, here in Matthew chapter 1, we get the story from Joseph's perspective. Uh, Again, Mary and Joseph are betrothed, which is a stronger relational status than, than the modern concept of engagement. In in the ancient world, when two families arranged a marriage, that couple came together in a legally binding uh, relationship that that could only be broken through death or divorce, even before they came together officially. And so even though Mary and Joseph aren't married yet, they are still considered to be husband and wife. And again, this relationship could only end through death or divorce. And it's during this season of betrothal that it becomes evident that Mary is expecting a child. And like Mary, Joseph has no reason to think that Mary would be having a baby. He knows that this isn't his baby. And I'm assuming that the story about meeting the angel and the Holy Spirit coming upon her and and having the the Messiah was not the most believable story, any more than it would be believable if someone tried to tell us that today. So Joseph assumes naturally that he has been betrayed by his fiance. Now, in the midst of this already awkward situation, we have to keep in mind that in the ancient world, particularly among the Jews, it was incredibly shameful to violate the sanctity of marriage, and, and, and your reputation among the community was everything. And in verse 19, we see a tension. Matthew describes Joseph as being a just or a righteous man, which means that he is someone who wants to honor the Lord with his life, someone who cares about right and wrong. And yet at the same time, he obviously cares for Mary. He loves her and doesn't want to humiliate her, despite the fact that this situation is humiliating to him. And so after a great deal of thought, Joseph decides to divorce Mary quietly without making a a public spectacle of things. And of course, what happened would eventually get around to the the community, but it would be gentler for Mary this way. And and at the same time, Joseph would be able to retain his honor. So in, in his mind, this is the best possible outcome for the situation given the circumstances. But God's plan is for Joseph and Mary to be together. And so as we pick up again in verse 20, we're going to see some divine intervention. Let's look at verse 20. 
It says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so sometime between Joseph's decision to divorce Mary and the actual going through with the process, an angel appears to him in a dream. And as he speaks, you'll notice that the angel addresses Joseph as son of David. And this is an important detail because it reveals that that in all of the twists and turns over history with with the Jewish people going in and out of exiles and under various kingdoms, uh, subjection, that Joseph is a bona fide male descendant of King David, who who would have a rightful claim to David's throne along with any of his sons. And in this dream, the angel explains everything exactly as it was explained To Mary, he tells Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife because what she has conceived, this child, is truly from the Holy Spirit. And so Mary hasn't done anything wrong. She's telling the truth. And the angel explains that the child will be a son, and he instructs Joseph to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The the name Jesus means salvation, and so it's an appropriate name for the Messiah. Now, in verse 22, Matthew tells us that everything that happened here took place in order to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. In other words, this is the fulfillment of prophecy, and the specific prophecy is found in Isaiah chapter 7. And so hundreds of years earlier, in one of Israel's darkest moments, the prophet Isaiah was sent to King Ahaz to encourage him and to call him to trust in the Lord rather than making a sinful political alliance with the kingdom of Assyria in order to protect them from a a coming invasion. And as a sign of God's deliverance of his people, in chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah said to Ahaz, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now at the end of verse 23, Matthew gives us some interpretive help when he explains that the Hebrew name Emmanuel means God with us. And Isaiah goes on to explain that that before this child is old enough to choose between right and wrong, the Lord will have completely demolished these invading armies, and they will never bother his people again. And, And when that happened, Ahaz would know that the Lord had delivered him. And so the birth of this child was a sign that God was with his people to deliver them. Hence the name Emmanuel. But now Matthew shows us that this prophecy actually pointed forward in a greater way to to the ultimate salvation that God would bring his people through the Messiah when the second person of the Trinity incarnated and, and literally came to be with his people to save them in the person of Jesus. Now I recognize that there's a point of potential confusion here because at first glance, it could seem like the angel tells Joseph to name his son Jesus, while Isaiah says that the child should be named Emmanuel. 
But really what we have here are two different uses of the word name. And so obviously, most commonly, a name is, is, is a word that is used to identify somebody, uh, to distinguish somebody from somebody else. And so if someone says, hey, Travis, I know that they're talking to me because they used my name. Right, but as we've talked about before, in the ancient world, the concept of a name included a person's reputation. It, it told you something about them, who they were and what they did in their life. And even today, we understand that to a certain extent. Right, if you hear the name Babe Ruth, you think about one of the greatest baseball players of all time, not, not just a guy who lived in New York 100 years ago. Likewise, if you hear the name Hitler, you think about possibly the most evil person in modern history and, and about World War II. Right, a person's name encapsulates who they are and what they do in their life, whether for good or for bad. And so what Isaiah is doing by referring to the child's name is communicating something about who he will be and what he will do. He will be God with us. And so later on in chapter 9, Isaiah speaks of this child again, and he says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And as I've said before, the point isn't that the Messiah is going to be named all of these things, because that would be a ridiculously long birth certificate. Now, all of these things are titles that tell us something about who the Messiah will be and what he will do. And so uh, all of these characteristics add up to salvation for God's people, and hence the legal name of Jesus, meaning salvation, is most appropriate. Now, I imagine that this was quite a dream for Joseph to experience, and so we'll see what happens when he wakes up as we look at verse 24. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so in this last section of the passage, we see that when Joseph woke up, he obeyed the, the angel who had given him this message. He takes Mary as his wife. And just like Mary, he doesn't know how all of this is going to work out. He doesn't know everything that this is going to require from him. But he's willing to do what God has called him to do. And as I was thinking about it this week, Joseph and Mary really stand in such contrast to us, or, or at least to me. Right, so often I find the smallest steps of faith and obedience to be so difficult. And yet here, Joseph and Mary are in a situation they can't possibly wrap their minds around. And they just say, okay, God, we'll do whatever you want us to do. God certainly knew what he was doing and choosing them for this role. And then in verse 25, we see that when the baby was born, Joseph names him Jesus. And by naming him, Joseph is legally identified as Jesus' father, which means that Jesus is officially qualified to be the heir to the throne of David. And it is in this way that the promised Messiah was born. And so in our passage this morning, we see the first thing that God offers us through Christmas, and that is himself. God offers us himself as he comes to his people in the birth of Jesus. In Jesus, God has given us himself. And as I thought about it this week, I want us to sit with this for a few moments, because this truth should absolutely floor us. But I'm afraid it doesn't. We should be permanently awestruck by this reality. But I'm afraid that we're not. 
Now, let me tell you what I mean. Several years ago, a question raised by Pastor John Piper rocked my world, and it's something that I still think about even today. And he asked, could you be happy in heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Could you be happy in heaven if Jesus wasn't there? In other words, if you could go to heaven and have everything you ever wanted, you'd be reunited with friends and family that you'd lost, all of the pains and suffering of this life are long gone, whatever you associate with heaven, if you could have all of that and the only catch was that Jesus wouldn't be there, would you still want it? Of course, I'm a seminary student, so immediately I know the right answer. But then the more I thought about it, the more I was disturbed by what I perceived to be the reality of my heart. Because as I thought about it, I realized that I might be okay with that. I might be okay with that. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I might be okay with an eternity like that. Because by and large, I'm often content with a life like that. I might be okay with an eternity like that because I was so used to living like that now. Believing in the Lord, don't get me wrong, but really finding satisfaction in in stuff or in relationships or in circumstances. As long as all of those things were in place, I was okay. But if they weren't in place, I wasn't okay. And, And the Lord's presence in my life didn't make the difference one way or another. I realized the uncomfortable truth that God was not really the center of my life. He was an accessory, a very important accessory, mind you, but an accessory. The the reason I, I might be okay with a good eternity without him is because too often I was largely okay with a good life now without him being the focus. And I'm not psychic or anything, would never claim to be, but I'm gonna stop talking about myself and I'm gonna start saying we because I I assume that you can relate to this on some level. Friends, how odd it is that we can read this text and not be blown away by it. I mean, just absolutely floored. You know, sometimes you'll you'll hear people say things like, oh, I wish I could get dinner with with this celebrity or, or this athlete or this leader. I would love to just have an hour to talk with them because they're so interesting, and, and I know it would be such a great time. Meanwhile, the God of the universe, who spoke this world into existence, who who is all-knowing and all-powerful and who exists in infinite majesty, has given himself to us right here, and essentially we shrug our shoulders and we say, yeah, okay, cool. We, We busy ourselves with work, or recreation, or entertainment, when unexpressible joy has been offered to us by God through Jesus. Through Jesus, God has offered us himself. You know, it's Christmas time, and so of course Santa Claus is, is everywhere, and it occurred to me this week that, that most people really don't care about Santa Claus. And, and I, I don't mean that to say that uh, that he's unimportant, as much as I mean that it's, it's not personal, right? Like, we don't, we don't spend time throughout the year thinking, I wonder what Santa Claus is doing right now. Or, I wish he could come over and watch the game with us. It would be so cool to just get to hang out with Santa for a while. Now, the extent of our relationship with Santa is us telling him what we want for Christmas, 
and hoping that he makes that happen. And church, my, my concern is that far too often, I'm afraid that that is, is a picture of our relationship with the Lord. Right? We want him to give us the things that we want. And we want him to protect us from all the things that we don't want. But we don't have a hunger to know him despite the fact that he has offered himself to us in Christ. Our, our Bibles sit on the shelf unread. We, we go extended periods of time without any kind of meaningful prayer. Our worship is, is lifeless. And it's, it's, it's insane. It, it's, it's truly insane because that's what we were created for. We were created to know God. And yet we seem to, to distract ourselves with anything and everything else that we can possibly find. We were created to know God. And if that wasn't enough, it it was our sin that messed it all up. And yet God has still taken it upon himself in Jesus to do everything that's necessary to restore that relationship. And yet we still just take it for granted. We've heard it so often. It's so familiar that we are unmoved. Church, we need to, to recognize this as a problem but we also need to recognize the opportunity that we have this morning. It, it is Christmas time, and, and in the midst of all of the parties and the presents and the food and the music and the lights and, and everything else that is associated with this season, which are all good things in their rightful place, this is a natural opportunity for us to focus our minds and our hearts on the birth of Jesus and what that means for our lives. And as we do that, my hope is that we reflect on how God has offered us himself, it would reorient our lives. It would turn our our hearts and our minds back to to the most foundational reality that that God has come to be with us through Jesus. And as we we do that, I I hope that that we are are reoriented, not just for this month as we celebrate Christmas, but that it would, it would be, begin a completely different trajectory for the rest of our lives until the Lord comes back or he calls us home, one way or the other. Friends, don't allow the most re- amazing reality of all history to pass you by. Don't allow yourself to be so distracted by the things of this world that you live more or less unaffected by the goodness and the glory of God in Christ. As we've said before, Jesus isn't just the reason for the season. He is the best reason for the season. And he is worthy of our heartfelt devotion every single day. And so this morning, let's appreciate the miracle of what God has done for us in giving himself to us through the birth of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, it's, it is so easy to get caught up in all of the extra stuff in this season. We miss out on the the real reason that we celebrate Christmas. But then if we're honest, we also recognize that it's very easy to get distracted in regular life. Lord, we look to all kinds of other things to provide us with the fulfillment that we've been created to enjoy only with you. And, And our hearts remain restless, and yet we continue to look anywhere and everywhere other than to you and what you have done for us through Jesus. And so, Father, as we have read the story of Jesus' birth, and we reflect on the fact that through Jesus you have offered us yourself, I pray that your Spirit would stir our hearts with a a fresh amazement 
and joy at what you have done for us. And that, Father, you would be the center of our lives, not just through this Advent season, but every single day, because you are worthy of it. Father, thank you for Jesus. And as we take this time to respond now, may we respond appropriately to him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.